Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Cracking Podcastville. Today I got a special podcast courtesy of Seattle Town Hall from April 25th at Temple de Hirsch. Today we bring you Stacey Abrams. She was the first African American woman to deliver a response to the State of the Union address. With no further ado, here's Jay Inslee introducing Stacey. Governor Jay Inslee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Trudy and I are delighted to be here tonight. We have two great things to celebrate in the state of Washington. 
Number one, this afternoon, the Eastern District of Washington Federal Court yet again struck down Donald Trump action. and made sure that Planned Parenthood continues to do its tremendous work. We are now 21 and 0 in our lawsuits against Donald Trump. People have asked me how I'm going to beat Donald Trump. I can tell you, it's really quite easy, actually. That's good news. Second piece of good news, we have Stacey Abrams in the state of Washington today, and this is a great delight. <clears throat> I want to tell you why this is so inspiring me to get to introduce her tonight. First, I want to give you just a real quick rundown of what's going on in Olympia, if you'll know. Uh, good news. We are going to make sure nurses get breaks, finally, in the state of Washington. We're going to... Our orca bills, by and large, are passing to preserve this iconic species in the state of Washington. We are. And we've got a lot of good things going on this year, but, but the fact that, that three days ago, we passed the best 100% clean electricity bill in the United States so that we can reduce carbon change gases. So we're making good things are happening, but I will tell you, um, we got two bills that are right on the cusp right now. Legislators are looking at two issues. And I think it would be uh, absolutely tremendous if Washington State has the first public option in the United States. And we're this close. I think it would be wonderful. I think it would be wonderful if we repeal Initiative 200 and showed Tim Iman that we're going to have justice in our society. The reason I mention this is everybody here has a First Amendment right to talk to your legislator in the next 24 hours so we can get that done. Uh, I've come here tonight because I want to welcome uh, a fantastic leader, uh, a national leader, a leader that is so much in sync with the values of our state. And I speak on behalf of 7 million Washingtonians in welcoming Stacy to the state of Washington. And the reason I say that the reason I say that is when you think, when you look at what we have been able to achieve in the state of Washington, the best paid family leave, the highest minimum wage, the best gender pay equity bill, the first net neutrality bill, an average 12% increase for teachers raises, those are the kind of things that we know are a model for the United States. And there was no one, there is no one that I met in the last year when I was chair of the Democratic Governors Association, who was more inspirational, more compelling, and more effective than advancing the values that we hold dear in Washington State than Stacey Abrams. And I can say that unequivocally. And I've in seeing her, I got to see her firsthand. I saw her first at a Democratic Governors Association a meeting where there was a bunch of hard-boiled political operatives. You know, these people have seen candidates come and go, and they've heard it all. But when Stacey Abrams spoke, those old hackney, hardcore uh, political operatives stood up and took notice and were on their chairs clapping. And then we went to Savannah and saw her in the heat of the battle. And I saw somebody that can really raise people's hopes, 
somebody who can connect with people. And now she's going to connect on people on something that we know is so important. Because we know this. If Georgia had had decent voting rights, voting rules, she would be governor of the state of Georgia today. So now... So now she is continuing her effort to help lead this nation so that every person in America has a fair right to vote. And I hope you'll join with her to doing exactly that. And do not forget her tremendous legislative accomplishments. She was a leader in the minority and got things done in the minority in Georgia. You think about what kind of talent and drive it takes to do that. This is a person who did it. So I am just delighted to be here. I want to offer her my best wishes. I want to ask you to help her on her voting rights mission. I want to encourage you to buy her book. Uh, do not steal her book. Buy her book. <laughs> because she's put her heart and soul in it. Let's give it up to Stacey for Stacey Abrams here tonight. Stacey Abrams. My goodness, there are a lot of you. Hi. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. So I learned this trick when I was in California. A lot of you have phones that you're going to be staring at instead of listening to me, which is going to make me think you don't like me, because uh, I know, I think the draft is done, but that could be what you're watching. So, what we're going to do is for the next 30 seconds, I'm going to look over here, and then over here, and then over, and y'all are going to take pictures, and then people are going to put their phones in their laps like you're in school and you're not supposed to have them, okay? Okay. So starting over here. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Okay. Hello. It's such a pleasure to see you again. This is an awkward smile, but it's going to work in your pictures. <laughs> Moving on. Konnichiwa. Hello. There you go. You're taking like 28 pictures. I know you've got burst on that phone. I'm talking to you. Put it down. Okay. And you guys. Hi. You're welcome. Thank you. I love you too. Okay, we're good. Thank you. So I want to say thank you to Governor Inslee, who took time off of not only the campaign trail running for president, but the extraordinary work he's doing here as governor of Washington State. Uh, thank you. Please help me thank him again. I want to say thank you to Lanisha de, de Bartleben uh, and the museum for welcoming me here as a co-host and to Mr. Harmon for having Town Hall open their arms to me. I know that technically you guys are still under construction, but I'll be back. <laughs> and then... And I want to say thank you to the rabbi for opening up this amazing synagogue to this conversation. Thank you. 
so backstage I was telling the governor that I was really dumb when I wrote my book. Uh, I'm not joking. I sold the book because I didn't have a job and I was planning to run for another job and I really like living inside my house and <laughs> one of my few marketable skills is writing. I was a romance novelist for a time and I knew I could write a book. And I'd been giving speeches uh, since I'd become Democratic leader, which is referred to as a minority leader, uh, because <laughs> there were so many more of them than there were of us. And so I wanted to write this book not about me. I, I did not want to write a memoir. I am not nearly that interesting. And, and this is not false modesty. I just think you need a lot more stuff. And you know, I don't have long-term relationships I can point to, so that takes like, like half of a <laughs> memoir out. <laughs> I'm really bad at dating. <laughs> but I am really good at failing, and I'm really good at making mistakes, and I was really good at figuring out how to leverage what others would attribute as my outsiderness. I was able to use that to do things. And as I would give these talks to young people, to women, to communities of color, to marginalized communities, sometimes to the Kiwanis Club, when I gave these talks, people would ask, like, how did you do this? How did you achieve the things you've achieved, and the part they didn't say was, but you're a black woman. <laughs> but I could hear that. And I would give answers, and I would find clever ways to frame it, and finally I thought, well, I should just write this down, and if I write it well, someone will pay for it, and then I can live inside my house, and this solves a whole lot of problems. <laughs> so in the summer of 2017, I, or yeah, summer of 2017, I sold my book. I went around, I wrote a book proposal, I went to uh, New York, sold my book. And then I realized I had to write the book. <laughs> and that was around the time I announced I was running to be the governor of Georgia. And so I'm writing a book and running for governor. Do not try this at home. <laughs> because I not only had to write this book, I had to also beg a lot of strangers for their money. But before you start begging your strangers, you're supposed to beg your friends. Uh, I do not beg my family. My family is broke. <laughs> so I really skip over that part and go immediately to friends. And I had some of them here in Seattle, so this is my third time back in the last few years. I'm so happy to be back. Yeah, you can clap for that. I like Seattle. <laughs> so I, had to, I was writing this book, and I was organizing the chapters. And there's an extraordinary young woman who has been by my side for most of this venture. She's actually worked with me for five years, started out as a legislative aide, and has tried to quit, and I just won't let her leave. This is Chelsea Hall. Chelsea, you stand up. <laughs> Chelsea right now is embarrassed and wondering why I did that. I did it because it's part of the reason I wrote the book. We spend so much time celebrating those who have achieved, we forget so often the people who make achievement possible. And I could not have written this book but for Chelsea Hall sitting with me in call time and then letting me take a nap for exactly 12 minutes and then giving me my two to three hours a day to write this book. But she did one more thing. She read the book as I wrote it. And she did something brave. She told me what she didn't like. Now, you know, there's a 15-year age gap between us. Slightly more, you can keep it to yourself. Um, 
But what she was willing to do was to push back, to hold me accountable for the things I was saying and compel me to tell real stories. Not the stories we're used to reading about in, in these books that are supposed to lead us to salvation and grace and wealth, but real stories about how things suck, how hard it is, how difficult it is, beginning with the hardest part of leadership, and that is daring to want more. So many of us have been taught that we are not supposed to be ambitious, that the things we want are not for us, that the people we want to be cannot be us. And we're also, also told you, you cannot be what you cannot see. If that's the truth, then so many of us are just out of the game to begin with. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because I knew it wasn't true. I'd been making up stuff I wanted to be for a long time. I wanted to be president of the world. Apparently, there's no such thing yet. <laughs> but I was 10, and you know, I watched a lot of J Dynasty as a child, so it, it, it made sense. But part of what I wanted to talk about was the need for ambition, the need to want more. And in fact, in the process of writing the book, I was being interviewed by Cosmo, and they asked me about my ambition. And I mentioned that I have the spreadsheet that I created after I broke up with one of my boyfriends. Uh, the second breakup. The first one, when he broke up with me, I put him in one of my romance novels, and he languishes in prison to this day. <laughs> I'm very vindictive in that way. Um, so Derek was my high school boyfriend. Chad was my college boyfriend. And Chad and I were inseparable until he decided I wasn't paying enough attention and that I wasn't warm and cuddly enough. I'm like, that's just not who I am. And eventually we broke up. And, and there, like three things were my fault. Like 11 were his. <laughs> but I will own three. And I was so hurt when we broke up because he was really kind of mean about it. He told me I was going to die alone, surrounded by nothing but books, because I was... He was like, you're, you're too cold to like animals. You don't really like plants. I'm like, you're cutting deep, man. Stop. Um, my response, he said I was too ambitious and I wanted too much. And now mind, we're having this argument at like 19. Yeah, or 18. And so I decided to prove him right. I went to the lab in, the, in our college at Spelman. And I, thank you. I wrote, I took out, um, I opened up the computer and this program called Lotus One Two Three. <laughs> For those of you under the age of forty, um, <laughs> it is what you now call Excel. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's okay. So in this Excel spreadsheet, I wrote down every ambition I had for my life for the next sixty years. I was going to be mayor of Atlanta because I had been involved in politics and social justice. And I believe that the mayor could transform the city. But I also put mayor because I'd never seen a black person achieve anything higher. And so for me, being the mayor of Atlanta was the pinnacle of power. There'd never been a black woman mayor that I could find, but a black man had become mayor of Atlanta. Atlanta was the largest place I'd ever lived because I was originally from Mississippi. So that was the pinnacle of my ambition. Two, I was going to be a millionaire, because back then that was a big thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And the only person I knew of who would achieve that, her name was Oprah, she was from Mississippi, and I had a round face like her, so that was possible. <laughs> and then the third thing I was going to do, long after I'd achieved those two things, I was going to write a book. Those were my biggest ambitions at the time. And over the next 
30 plus years, I've updated the spreadsheet. It's been my map. And around 1994, I met this gentleman, uh, one of my dearest friends, and he and I went to lunch. And he looked at me and he said, Stacy, when are you running for president? And I said, president of what? <laughs> now, he and I had won this amazing fellowship. We were working in D.C. for the Clinton White House. We were in high cotton. But when he said, when are you running for president? I thought he was having an aneurysm. This is this white guy from South Carolina. He was a Republican, too. So I'm like, now you're just you're messing with me. And he said, no. He was like, look, why wouldn't that be your ambition? You're smart. You're capable. You know stuff. You don't know anything about foreign policy, but we can fix that. Why wouldn't you run for president? And what shames me to this day is that I did not believe him. This moment where this person who was becoming my friend saw possibility in me, I immediately rejected it because there'd never been a black man, a black woman, a woman, ever, to be a viable candidate. I mean, at that point, we'd had two strains of Jesse Jackson, but both times everyone knew he wasn't going to win. Geraldine Ferraro barely survived running as the vice presidential nominee. I was like, this is impossible. But because of that conversation with Will, I went home that night and I updated my spreadsheet and I added that I would run for President of the United States. Now, for anyone from Politico who's listening, this is not an announcement. <laughs> it is a setup. <laughs> because the reality is, so often, our ambitions are bounded by what we've seen, but they're also bounded by what people believe we're capable of. And one of my responsibilities as someone who has had an opportunity to stand for governor of Georgia, to deliver the State of the Union response, is to look at someone like, thank you. My responsibility is to look at someone like Chelsea Hall and know that if I do my job well, I'll one day get to work for her. That's my responsibility. And so Lead from the Outside is that story. It's the story of how I had the presence of mind and the absence of success to not concede the 2018 election. Because you do not concede what is not right. It's how I was able to start a new business when the business my partner and I started collapsed because no one believed in us enough as women entrepreneurs to invest in our ideas. We couldn't solve our problem, so we shut down our business and solved the problem for other people. It's why I believe that I should talk about my brother's sobriety challenges and his incarceration, why I should talk about my debt. It's why I tell the truth when I go out into the public because if we cannot tell our own truths, how can we expect people to live their own? That is our responsibility. That is our obligation. And so I've written a book about it, and you now all have copies of it. I assume you'll read it. But just in case you won't, I'm going to stop talking now and let you ask me any questions you have. Thank you. Okay. So this is how it's going to work. There are two microphones, one there and one there. Please approach the microphones, but approach with questions. 
not comments with an inflection at the end. Not diatribes against whomever ticked you off before you got here. And not with your own version of this book, okay? I'm very glad you're here. Thank you. Oh, and tell me who you are. I'm Tom Murphy on Capitol Hill. I know you are interested in the future and justice for domestic workers. Absolutely. And I want to know what, what brought that about. If there was any particular instance that made you want to promote domestic workers in this country. Sure. Thank you. So one of the questions I get is, why am I running for office? Why am I going to run for office again? Why am I so committed to public service and to the work I do? I believe poverty is immoral. I believe it is economically inefficient. I think it is a waste of human capital. And I think it's solvable. I do not believe that poverty is permanent. But I also grew up the daughter of two working class folks. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker who worked full time my entire life and still struggled to make ends meet. We lived without running water, the lights got cut off, we had what something my mom called mom specialty, which we later discovered wasn't this miraculous like high class meal, it was just all that was left in the refrigerator. But I also grew up in a community where I didn't know professionals. I didn't know people who had jobs as lawyers and doctors. The highest profession most of us knew were teachers. And most of those teachers didn't look like us. And so for me, the conversation has always been, how do we bring justice to those who create our world and make it work? And there are no people who are more committed to our service and less respected for that work than domestic workers. No one. It is literally their job to clean up after us, to raise our children, to take care of our elderly, to, take, to tend to our sick, and they make the least amount of money have the worst impact in their taxes, face the deepest disdain, are often kept out of Social Security Administration work. They don't make money. They don't get to save money. They don't earn retirement. They are not covered by the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. They are the excised people of our communities, and yet our communities could not run without them. And so my commitment to domestic workers is because it is a reflection of their commitment to who we are. Good evening. Hi. My question, oh, I'm very short. It's okay. My question is about inspiring others to go into public service and continue public service. I think after your amazing run for office, a lot of my friends and their friends have been inspired to do more in public service. And I'm grateful for that. But what can we do as a community? And what, how can we inspire others to keep on the fight? Because public service is hard. It's not be honest, the most high-paying job in career. If you do it right, no. <laughs> and, and, and also, because of all the stress that comes in public service, when you're thinking about other people with their social media accounts, they get all this abuse. So what, what can we do to inspire people as a community, as single individuals, to help others get into public service and ourselves get into public service. Sure. Thank you so much. Tell me your name. Kamara. Kamara, thank you. Okay, so I believe in public service because I've done all three. I've done the private sector, the public sector, the nonprofit sector. I think all three are important. And any time we exempt either one of those sectors from the obligation of preserving and improving opportunity, 
then we're doing the wrong thing. We're all obligated. We just do it in different ways. Uh, the private sector is not required to create jobs, but they are required to make sure the jobs that are created are good jobs, that pay well, that you can actually make a living and make a life doing, and to protect the integrity and the dignity of the people who work there. The nonprofit sector steps, steps into the gap, serves usually the marginalized communities that are left out and do not receive the fullness of the services they deserve from the public sector. But fundamentally, we created government because as a society, we believe that we should contribute to the upliftment of all. That's all that government is. I mean, that's what it is. That's why it pays so little. <laughs> I mean, because fundamentally, it is, it is, it's a moment of grace. Think about it. We all invest. We pay our taxes. We put our money in for services we may never need and places we will likely never go for people we will never see. But we do it because we know that one day we might need something and it was worth it to us to make that risk because we know we're all better people because we've served others. That's how I talk to people about public service. It is not for glamour. It is not for wealth. If you are doing it for wealth, you are either doing it wrong or you are going to prison soon. <laughs> you are. <laughs> it is because we want our values to be lived through our policies. And notice I said policies, not politics. Politics are a tool for the policies we want to see. When politics are your end, you're doing it wrong. Because when politics are your end, you will bastardize the policies to fit your political agenda. But when policies are your goal, you will only use politics to move it forward. And if you don't know what that looks like, think about the last time something good happened in government. It usually happens because people put aside their politics because the policies matter so much. Right. And so the three things you got to do, number one, ask people to run. You have to ask. I didn't have to be asked because I'm fairly ambitious and aggressive on my own. But most people do need to be invited because they don't think they're worthy of the challenge or up to the challenge. And so ask people. If you meet someone who you think can make a difference, ask them to run. But when you ask them, the second thing you want to do is say, I'm going to help you. Because it is insufficient to tell somebody to get out there and do something you won't do yourself and then go home and hope they get it done. And the third thing is stay around when they're doing the work. Politicians, and I, Chelsea's about to flinch. I say that politicians are like 15-year-old girls because I used to be a 15-year-old girl. I was never a 15-year-old boy, so I cannot speak to their motivations. But I know as a 15-year-old girl, the three things that will move us or would move us, money, peer pressure, and attention. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> Same thing's true for politicians. Money, peer pressure, and attention. For those without money, the way you create peer pressure is by bringing attention to what's bad, but also bringing attention to what's good. And in politics, we spend a lot of time pointing out people we're mad at. We spend less time celebrating those who are toiling in the vineyards trying to do good. And if we spent a little more time, especially on social media, lifting up that school board member who might be the lone vote for the thing we want, but we need to celebrate their willingness and their courage to cast that vote. And we need to put pressure on her colleagues or his colleagues to say that you're doing the wrong thing if you're not also joining. That's how the other side gets stuff done. They create peer pressure, sometimes based on falsehoods, but it works because people don't want to be caught outside of that circle. 
we've got to create a circle of good where the policies and the values we hold to be true are actualized and celebrated, even if they're not victorious. Because fundamentally in politics, you rarely win every battle. But the mission isn't win. The mission is fighting. Because when you're willing to fight, you know you're going to be around to serve another day. If what you're only looking for is winning and victory, you're going to be disappointed a lot. My job was minority leader. Some of you may have the original, the hardcover book. The title was minority leader. It's in my title that I was going to lose. <laughs> I mean, they, they don't play. It's like a minority leader. Like you don't have, an, and my, my counterpart is the majority leader. He had the votes, I didn't. But I won by creating enough of a value system that they needed me to get things done. And if we want politics to be more successful, it's not because we focus so solely on the victory, we focus on the values. Because when you're focusing on values, you can't be beaten when your values are right. That's what we gotta do. Hello, my name is Harvey Sadis. Our Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal and others have been cr criticized by leadership in the local and national Jewish community for supporting the voice and courage of Representative Ilhan Omar's raising questions about our foreign policy towards Israel. Could you comment on Representative Jayapal's support of her colleague in light of the words of Rabbi Hillel, who said, if I am not for myself, then who will be for me? If I am not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? Thank you. I've had the privilege of getting to know Pramila for many years, and I've recently had a chance to meet um, Ilhan. I think that there is legitimate critique of the phrasing that Ilhan uses sometimes, but I don't think it's born of animus. I think it's born of being from a community where language is used differently. And part of what I look for from her is her willingness to learn from how she speaks about it, because I think what she's getting at is right which is that no one community should be, I'll say it this way, we should always be able to critique our government and to critique our policies and to call ourselves to better behavior by examining what we are doing, whether we agree in the end or not. I think she has unfortunately occasionally used tropes that when you have exposure to, to the Jewish community, you know not to use. But having grown up in the Deep South where I did not meet a Jewish person until I went to New York uh, and I was in a summer program, that was my first exposure to an entirely different culture. And so I think sometimes we forget that despite the globalism of our communities, we still have, we don't have universal exposure. And so I do think that Ilhan, that Congresswoman Omar is doing a better job of trying to articulate her positions. I do not believe there's animus, and I, I applaud Congresswoman Jayapal because she is willing to create space for education and for growth. Because fundamentally, that's what we should want from our leaders. Perfection is impossible, but growth is always available. And as long as she is willing to grow, and there are those willing to help her grow, then that's what we want. On the policy side, I think it is an evil that we see when the leader of the United States incites violence against any member of Congress. And what's, what's more offensive is the cynicism that he's using to do so, because he knows better. 
and he knows what he's doing. He is trying to wedge us apart so that he's not held accountable for flawed and questionable policies that he does not want examined. And we have to keep our eye on what's being called. Whether we like how the question is called, we have to make sure we pay attention to the question, and that's what's at stake. Hi, um, my name's Teresa, and uh, first off, I'm from Columbus, Georgia, born and raised. Hello. And I watched the race really closely and pulled hard for you. Um, It'll work next time. Yeah, there you go. Um, I've read... (laughs) I'm not making announcements, I'm just saying. I've read that you are planning to work on voting rights and voting reform, and I'm wondering what you are going to be doing towards that end. Thank you so much. So you may have heard I ran for governor in Georgia. Um, I had as an opponent uh, Secretary of State, basically a cartoon villain, who um, um, who opened his campaign by pointing shotguns, threatening to round people up in his truck, uh, did something that Chris Kobach, who is no one's idea of you know, a social justice leader. Chris Kobach stepped down because he believed that there was something improper about being the Secretary of State who oversaw his own election to the next highest office. Brian Kemp didn't have that problem. And so under the Constitution of Georgia, despite being told by many people of goodwill this is the wrong thing to do, he decided to continue his eight years of voter suppression by continuing that process to give himself access to the governor's office. Uh, And in the process, he oversaw the purging of more than one and a half million voters, the closure of 214 precincts out of 3,000, holding hostage the voter registrations of 53,000 people, 90% of whom were people of color, 70% of whom were black. Uh, He oversaw the rejection rate of uh, absentee ballots at the highest rate Georgia has ever seen, Uh, provisional ballots given into entire communities rather than letting people actually cast real ballots, and so their votes were not counted. Uh, He oversaw the mismanagement of a database. So poorly did he manage the database that he falsely accused the Democrats of hacking the database two days before the election because his own team had screwed up the database. Yes, this is the governor of Georgia. Uh, And so, shockingly, he won uh, by 54,000 votes. And this was after one of the closest races, it's in fact the closest election in Georgia since 1966. Uh, We, in our side, we increased voter turnout for Democrats to the highest rate in Georgia history. I received more votes than any Democrat ever. We, (laughs) and we transformed the electorate of Georgia. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased the black participation rate. We increased black votes by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. We centered communities of color. I was the first candidate of either party to march in a gay pride parade. Uh, We met with, I was the only one who went to Dragon Con and won Music Fest. Um, 
But in the end, we centered communities of color, we talked about marginalized communities, and the fear was that by doing so, we were gonna cost ourselves the election by losing white voters. Barack Obama secured 23% of the white vote in Georgia. Uh, John Kerry got 23% of the white vote. Hillary Clinton got 21%. A few percent got confused and voted third party. <laughs> I received 25% of the white vote in the state of Georgia. Now, I say all this to say this. We transformed the electorate of Georgia. We reached presidential level turnout. And the only definitive difference that we can find is that not every vote that was cast got counted and not every person eligible to vote was allowed to do so. That means I can't know for a fact that I would be the governor of Georgia but for the malfeasance and the mismanagement of Brian Kemp, but I know it's a pretty good guess. And more importantly, I know that 1.9 million Georgians did not have their voices heard because they cannot believe that it was a fair fight. And so on November 6th, I refused to concede because we needed to make sure every vote was counted. And in fact, in the process, we were able to get thousands of new votes counted that had been cast and were being thrown away. But by the 10th day, we knew that there was no way to overcome the eight and a half years of voter suppression performed by my opponent. And so while I acknowledge the legal election, because the numbers are in his favor given the rules, I refuse to concede the process. Because one of the challenges to our democracy is that we have candidates who are so afraid of not winning the next election because they're seen as sore looters, losers that we condone the very practice that eliminated actual participation. I don't run for office for me. As we talked about before, you don't make money in politics. The work I do is because I believe in the values that drive me. And if I'm willing to concede those values on the off chance that maybe the next time I'll get elected, then I don't deserve to have that office. Because it's not about me. We launched Fair Fight Action, an organization that's grounded in Georgia but has national conversations. We launched it on the 10th day, on November 16th, because I want us to fight for electoral integrity in America again. I want us to fight against voter suppression. And thank you. We have to understand that this is an existential crisis for America because they may be coming after the voters who would vote for me, but voter suppression is an imprecise tool. When you start to corrode our democracy, you corrode the trust we have in it. And democracy is an idea. And when people no longer believe in the idea, democracy falters. And for the last 20 years, in a naked pursuit of power, the conservative Republican agenda has made voter suppression its core tenet. And when you are willing to destroy democracy to retain power, it is a danger to all of us. Now, not every Republican agrees with this. And in fact, I have a friend who had to have three do-overs with the same Republican primary. There aren't enough Democrats in his district to care. But the malfeasance that is targeting voters who might support me has harmed him. And that's what we have to recognize, that voter suppression hurts us all. Because when people no longer trust our democracy, they step out. Or worse, they become angry and bitter. And when that happens, 
all of these systems that we've put in place, which rely on the consent of the governed, that consent also starts to erode. We are a better people when everyone has the right to be heard. And so Fair Fight Action, if you go to fairfightaction.com, you can sign up, get our emails. We are in the midst of a epic legal battle, uh, the outcome of which, no matter how it's decided, will not make me governor of Georgia So let, in 2018. So let's be clear. I don't win no matter what. But I fight because we have to win. Because if we can do this, this legal lawsuit that we, the lawsuit that we filed basically argues that registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting have been corroded to the point that even though the laws may be on the books, the system itself is unjust and violates the Constitution. Uh, we have a hearing on Monday, uh, our first hearing in this lawsuit. Shockingly, the Republicans are saying that there's nothing, there's nothing to see here. Um, we disagree. <laughs> Uh, and so we'll be fighting in the bat we'll fighting our battle in the courtroom, but we're also pushing legislation and we're working on advocacy because Georgia may be ground zero for voter suppression, but we're not alone. Uh, Washington State has done amazing things, but you just have to look at Indiana, where they moved voting precincts outside of Marion County. They shut them down so that you had to ha basically have a car to get to vote, or places like Ohio, where the pur the purge laws are so aggressive. Uh, Florida. <laughs> Just Florida. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what happened in North Carolina. So we have to believe, as I do, that we are facing an existential crisis of our democracy. Republicans have talked about voter fraud for years so much that they make it sound like the truth. It is a lie. There is no such thing as voter fraud. We can't get 50% of our people to vote. No one's putting on a hat and glasses trying to vote twice. Doesn't happen. What we call voter what they call voter fraud is usually voter confusion because we have a we have fifty different states of democracy. That means the person who leave, who moves from Oklahoma to Texas is rightfully confused about what the rules are. And typically, what is called voter fraud is simply voter confusion. But voter suppression is real. It is pervasive. It is corrosive, and it is fixable. Hi, my name is Terry Lindicky. I'm an officer in one of the oldest and uh, largest women's organizations in this country. And part of my job is to encourage women to run because we are 52% of the population but less than 20% representation. And so I'm always out there, you know, that if you can't run for office, then help a woman that can. And along that line, because we all have so much respect for you, I know you don't want to run for president this time, but will you try later? Now, I didn't say I wouldn't run. I just said I wasn't announcing anything. Okay. <laughs> That's what I wanted to hear. <laughs> well, thank you for the question. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Blaze. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm wondering um, whether you think that uh, big tech companies, uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, Amazon, uh, whether, whether there is uh, anything there that needs regulation, whether there's anything there that needs regulation um, that, that might not follow the mold of, um, of laws or of regulations that have already been worked out in uh, previous 
decades or centuries. Sure. Absolutely. So the question is, do I believe that there should be a regulatory scheme that looks at the evolution of essentially an entirely new economy in America? Yes. <laughs> um, I, think, I think it is deeply disingenuous to argue that we do not need to update our laws as often as we need to update you know, our, you know, our iOS patch. <laughs> Because the reality is these are companies that, much like the railroad and the banks and the oil companies, any infrastructure company that has that much control over how we live our lives requires oversight. Not because they're inherently bad, but because that degree of power should never be aggregated and accumulated to only one community and certainly without oversight. Avarice is natural. And people want more. Companies are designed to create more profit. They are not designed to create more democracy and more access. And regulatory schemes are designed to hold us to our better angels, or at least to make certain that the devil on your shoulder doesn't get away with too much. And so I absolutely believe that we have reached a level, we have reached a tipping point where a regulatory scheme that is reflective of today's economy and today's infrastructure reality is absolutely necessary. So previously, you had used this great phrase, uh, electoral integrity. Yes. But there's a group of marginalized people that is often excluded from discussions about this, and that's prisoners. That's come back into focus now with a lot of the town halls where some of the candidates have been answering questions about this. In Washington, we're making some great strides. We're going to become, if Jay Inslee passes this, we're going to become the fifth... (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've just wandered into a conversation I'm not supposed to be a part of. No, 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 it's it's great. Um, We're going to become the fifth state to end prison gerrymandering. And several other states have made some great strides towards uh, re-enfranchising prisoners like Florida, which passed Amendment 4, which puts uh, people with felony convictions back onto the voter rolls. Now, given how close Georgia's race was, and given the historically high rates of incarceration and disenfranchisement in your state, what do you think about this issue and the potential impact of reenfranchisement and other rights for prisoners? Thank you. So I'm, I'm going to tweak my answer just a little bit because you raised it, and I think it's important for us to think about it this way. I should never want democracy to be fixed for me to win an election uh, because then it's about my power. Voting in democracy is about our power. It's about the power of the individuals who comprise our society to make decisions about the direction of our country. And that applies to every eligible citizen in our country. And I, no, before you clap, you may not agree with me completely. And for me, the baseline is that if you are an American, if you are a citizen, you should have the right to vote in the United States of America. Now, if you start with that premise, we then begin to layer constraints. We, we constrain it to 18-year-olds. I think we need to have a conversation about 16-year-olds. And we need to have a conversation about the type of elections in which they're allowed to vote. I do not believe that the commission of a crime should automatically disenfranchise anyone. I do not believe that. 
because the, the challenge is what we consider the commission of a crime differs based on the victim. And the fact that you can rob someone's house and be told you're no longer a part of our society, but you can steal someone's house <laughs> and not be held accountable, that's problematic to me. So I think we have to keep talking. <laughs> Hi, you've run back and forth. You better have the best question for me. <laughs> Tell me who you are. Good evening, everyone. Um, my heart is literally outside my chest. Um, this is just a surreal moment for myself. And I think when she grows up, she'll understand this moment. My name is Imani. <laughs> Imani, how old are you? Nine. You sure? Okay, I was going to go with 22, but I'll go with nine. Okay. And her brother's in the audience as well, watching over Hi. there. Way you... past their bedtime. Um, <laughs> I, my name I won't is tell. Shukri, and in Arabic, it means shukran. My mother was in labor for three days, and when she, that's a long time, I know. Um, <laughs> and when she gave birth, she said, Alhamdu al shukri. Uh, and it, uh, thank God, and, and we thank God for you, <laughs> Stacy. Thank you. Um, I am a black Muslim woman, a uh, refugee from Somalia, um, and my question, one of the banned uh, countries, thanks to uh, the current occupant of the White House, um, but before I wanted to, uh, to get to my question, I wanted to thank actually Town Hall for uh, making slots available specifically to black women. Um, my question is, uh, and I want you to be able to talk to specifically us black women tonight, um, and my question is, you know, we know about the challenges that you faced running for office, um, it's in the book, it's documented, but I want to learn more about the strategies that you used um, and the tools that you had in your toolbox to endure. Uh, to endure these incredibly white, oppressive systems. And I'm hoping you can talk more about that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I talked about earlier when I was raising money, I would call friends. And these are people who had supported me, had been there for me. And I've said this before, the, I would get this response where they would be like, oh, you're so smart, you're so capable, you'll make a great governor, but you're a black woman. Like, I know. <laughs> I was black when you gave me 250. I was black when you gave me 1,000. I'm not sure what's happening now. Uh, and part of what was happening was that they did not believe that a black woman was capable of being the governor of a state because it had never happened. And despite all of the attributes they were willing to give me credit for, their diminution of my capacity was purely grounded in my race because my opponent was a white woman. So it wasn't gender, although that, that was also part of the problem. Because they would argue that the black men they'd supported hadn't been able to get the job either. And so for them, the hierarchy of capacity put me at the very bottom. And despite having more experience, a clearer platform, a proven track record, my race and gender conflated to create an impossible paradox for them. But the reality was it wasn't just white people who did that. It was black friends who did it. 
because part of the internalized oppression of being black is that we start to believe the narratives we've been told about ourselves. And our capacity for imagination often ends at the water's edge. If we haven't seen it, we're just not sure it can be done. Uh, as I ran, I had older black women tell me I needed to straighten my hair. I had older white women tell me I needed to join Weight Watchers. I had, oh yeah. <laughs> and I had people of every stripe tell me I needed to find a man. Um, and there were often hidden questions about whether, well, why haven't you found one? Like, I'm just bad at dating, but it's none of your business. Um, and so, so there, there are pieces that are embedded in each of those those commentary, because part of their challenge is that our expectations of black women have been so low for so long. And going back to the domestic workers conversation, one of the reasons domestic workers are so undervalued and underserved is that they're largely people, women of color, and even more largely black women, or used to be black women, although uh, because of how little we pay, we've actually pushed even those communities into darker corners. But here's how I survive. Number one, I know who I am. I was raised by an extraordinary woman, and the first feminist I ever knew was my father, not my mother. Um, because my mom was a strong black woman, but my dad was like, my daughters can do anything. And, and that, that instills in you a resilience that, while it doesn't make you impervious, it makes you capable of pushing through it. Number two, I know who my friends are. And the people who were my friends before May 22nd, which was our primary, and the friends who were my friends after May 22nd, they don't think I remember. I remember. <laughs> and the thing is, I knew who my friends were before I started running. Because those are the people who answer your call no matter when you, you make it. Those are the ones who show up, who bring you soup in the midst of a campaign, not because... You ask for it because they realize you probably don't have any food in your house. Like having friends, and this goes back to the question about how we help people run, being friends, just taking care of each other. Number three, I remember why I do this. When we had to hire security for my campaign in the primary because of the death threats, when we had to, I, I was nearly, I, I won't say I was arrested, but they called the sheriff on me when I tried to go and visit a public library in one of our counties in Georgia. Uh, oh yeah, they were, they were very hostile to my, <laughs> my attendance. I'm like, it's public, and I, I am part of the public. I got proof. Um, those are things that can erode your sense of self. But what I talk about in the book and what I, I embrace is that fear is also a part of who we are. And otherness is inherent to who we are. And instead of rejecting that fear or pretending that otherness doesn't exist, I embrace it. Because my otherness has made me like a queen of guerrilla warfare. <laughs> I can do lots of stuff that other people can't do. And particularly as a black woman who is navigating in spaces where I am often the only one. I'm the first woman to lead a party in the history of Georgia. I was the first. Y'all can clap, but that was 250 years in the making. That's stupid. 
I was the only African-American to be a leader in the House, and I, therefore being the first black woman to be a political leader in the General Assembly, which, let's say, be, be clear, there are 180 members of the House. Republicans controlled about 120 seats. 90% of those seats were controlled by white men. They were not used to having to deal with people like me. And so part of my capacity to do that work was that I didn't pretend I was one of them. Because often we're taught to try to, if you guys remember the 80s when you're supposed to dress like men. Uh, no. And as a black woman, I couldn't pull it off if I wanted to. Like, I, I've, you're, it's hard to miss me. I'm pretty apparently who I am. And I can either be afraid of it to the extent that I try to hide it, or I can embrace what that fear is telling me. And what that fear is telling me is that this is going to be hard. It's telling me that I am probably going to be disappointed and hurt and ravaged by insults and attacks that will never face another person. The Republicans did an ad of me as King Kong climbing the side of the Capitol. They did another one of me as a minstrel dancing. And there was no response from the press. No one called them on it. And so my obligation as a black woman is to understand what's coming, but be prepared for it, and be prepared not to let it change who I am. And then fundamentally, I, I like to quote Bruce Banner from the first Avengers. <laughs> and this is going to go to every trope that people tell about black women, but in this case, it's true. I stay angry. <laughs> now, here's what I mean. So Captain America tries to get Bruce Banner to turn to the Incredible Hulk, and he's like, you know, we need to get angry, Bruce. And Bruce is like, I'm always angry. But, I don't, but he doesn't look it, because the thing is, anger is a fire. I'm angry at oppression. I am angry at racism. I am angry at the misogyny and the black misogyny that is directed at me because my blackness terrifies them almost as much as my womanhood. I am angry that they are then allowed to strip me of my humanity and try to take my vote and my voice. And my anger is going to make me act out in ways they are not prepared for. I'm going to create fair fight action. I'm going to create fair count to make sure the census works. And I'm going to run for office again and again until I can change everything I need to change. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. How many people we have in line over here? Four, and then we've got, oh, there's like a gang of y'all. Come closer. <laughs> I need to see who's in line over here. Five. Okay, so this is it, and I promise I will be more succinct in my answers. <laughs> but still thorough. Okay. Hi. I love your t-shirt. I know. <laughs> Wonder where I got it. Turn, turn around so people can see it. This that was the first a, group I created. Yes, she created this. This project. How many, how many voters did we register? 350,000 registered people of color in the state of Georgia out of 800,000 unregistered people of color. I worked on your campaign. I know. <laughs> Thank you for running. Thank you. Um, the question I was going to ask you just answered, because um, I have been feeling pretty deflated lately considering some of the bills that have been passed in Georgia. 
So um, thank you for that speech. Thank you. I'm not going to whine about it now, um, but I will ask you, any thoughts on what we can do to fight um, those uh, BMD mo uh, voting machines? Um, yeah. I'm very concerned about that. Um, I know that Marilyn Marx has done a lot of work, Coalition, Coalition for Good Governance is the lawsuit, yeah. but as grassroots, is there anything more we can do? So uh, BMD machines are the ballot marking devices, which basically lie to you about what you said on the, your ballot when you tried to vote. Um, sorry, I'm editorializing. These are dangerous machines because there's no way to audit how you voted. And if you can't audit it, we can't prove it. And if we can't prove it, it probably didn't happen. And so, shockingly, they're trying to buy these machines all over the place. And George is about to spend $150 million, the largest single purchase in American history of these kinds of, of voting machines at large, and certainly of voting machines that have been called the worst voting machines in America. So, having laid the groundwork for a terrible answer, the answer is we just have to keep talking about it. I mean, part of... Part of the challenge in the space we're in right now is that we hope that if we say it once and say it effectively, that people will hear it and it will be fixed. Republicans tell a lie a thousand times until it sounds like the truth. We tell the truth one time, and if people don't say amen, we stop talking and we go off about our business. What the grassroots can do, what it does so effectively, is repeat the truth so often that it becomes inevitable. It needs to wash over us, and part of that is education, and part of it is insistence. The Tea Party was effective not because they were right, but because they wouldn't go away. <laughs> and we have to be the same, because we're fight we literally are fighting for our future. If we do, I mean, because this is not, this isn't a game. You've got voter suppression activities here. You've got the fight to undercount our populations through the census, okay? You put those two things together, that's a decade lost. And it's the decade in which the inflection point of most of the demographic changes that are going to happen to America will happen during that decade. You don't think they've had demographers telling them about this for years? They could either diversify their party by diversifying their behavior, or they could just stop the rest of us from talking. Guess which one they chose. And so we have to, I'm going to talk about voter suppression and Brian Kemp until he steals my house <laughs> or it's magically foreclosed on or something because, and I don't think he's going to do that, but I'm going to keep doing it because voter suppression is not, it's not about black people. It's about power. It's about making sure that climate change is never changed because then you lose money on the fossil fuel industry. It is about ensuring that the people who have the ability to control our lives through their policies never have to be held accountable for it. And the reality is we're not, not everyone in this room shares my values, but you should all share my value that democracy should be real. That's our responsibility. And so I need you to keep talking and keep spinning it up. Good evening. Um, 
My name is Jamila Taylor, and I'm the daughter of two parents who have survived the segregated South, the Jim Crow South, and have um, succeeded in their own rights. My father is an African-American history professor and founder of blackpast.org, and my mother is a, um, is a great mentor to me and a mother figure to me, of course, um, and, and introduced me to the Girl Scouting movement and has instilled in me the value of public service and doing good for community. And with that, I am uh, in this journey, uh, soon to be a graduate of Emerge on May 5th. And I am stepping into public life as a candidate for Federal Way City Council position five. In this journey, I have discovered um, as I have been told for many, many, many years, you should run. I've been told that since I was 10 years old. Um, and, of course, that self-doubt, that all those issues um, come into your mind. And what I have a concern about is how to resonate with potential voters, folks who don't even realize that they have an impact on policy, that they choose not to vote. And I want to find ways to motivate people to vote, even though uh, they have the, the right to vote. I want to address the apathy in voting. Thank you. So the first thing I would say is it's not apathy. We, we tend to attribute it to apathy. Apathy means you don't care. These are often people who are despairing. They care. They just don't think they can do anything about it. Uh, because if you live in intergenerational poverty, you've seen politicians come and go, and nothing changes. Or you elect someone, and you don't see them again until they need you again. And so the framing has to be not that these are people who are apathetic. These are people who are too busy, because when you're working your third shift for $10 an hour, although you guys have an actual minimum wage here, um, when you have kids at home and you can't afford health care and daycare, politics just seems beyond the realm of change. You're so worried about today, and, and it hurts to have hope. It hurts to invest. It hurts to believe yet another politician who tells you yet another story about what they can do. So the first thing you can do is tell the truth, which is, I cannot fix your problems tomorrow. If you elect me, I am not going to be able to make your life better immediately. But here's what I'm going to work on. And here's how I'm going to work on it. Because people believe the truth. And they are willing to invest when they believe that if they can help you, the truth becomes manifest. Number two, you got to talk to people who do not like you. I didn't just campaign with people of color or with black. Because I didn't even know black people were going to vote for me. Like, my birth is not an entitlement to an election. I had to talk to everyone. And I had to listen to them tell me what they were mad about, what they were concerned about, what they didn't like. Now, the things I was not willing to change, my hair, my skin color, my gender, those were non-starters. Everything else was negotiable. And part of my responsibility was to listen to them to understand what it was that was worrying them. And then the third thing is keep showing up. You don't just ask once, and if they don't say yes, you're like, well, you're a lost cause. They've had people lie to them for years. They need you to tell them the truth over and over again. And it may not be you who shows up every time, but make sure that you've got a good team around you. That's what, that's what campaigns are. Campaigns are trying to tell the truth again and again, not bashing your opponent, not defeating the other side. It is about winning their trust that if they take the time and invest in you, things have the possibility of becoming better.
Meisha. Um, one of my frustrations with the National Democratic Party is how willing they are to throw black and brown people under the bus to go to the center. I don't want to be 50% away from a Nazi or a white nationalist, so I don't know what center we're talking about, but what difficult <laughs> conversation would you have? That's what I say now about the center. Um, what difficult conversation needs to be had with the National Democratic Party to cut this shit out, basically? Okay. <laughs> okay, so first of all, we're Democrats in this conversation. Yes. There, there is no national narrative. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. What I mean is candidates set the agenda. They set the way they're going to run. They set how they're going to deal things. What I will give credit to, to the current Democratic Party, is that by having so many debates, we're actually going to be able to have these conversations out loud a lot sooner than we normally do. That's the most the Democratic Party can do. The Democratic Party doesn't fund campaigns. They put some money in but most of the money raised are raised by candidates. Candidates have to be held accountable for who they are. Candidates have to be held accountable for how they talk about the issues and what the center is. I am not, I'm a, okay, for you guys, I'm probably a centrist, because y'all are different. <laughs> I'm, I'm like hyper-progressive for the South. <laughs> I'm, I'm normal progressive for the Midwest. I'm probably a Republican here. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm not. I'm not. I, my, my point is this. We have to also recognize that people are running a 50-state strategy. And what my mom, my mom is a pastor now, she used to be a librarian, but she's a pastor, and what she says is you meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. But that means, that means we have to give our candidates the space to talk to everyone, but they cannot compromise their values. And so here's what I say. I don't mind if you are willing to compromise how you talk about something as long as you're talking about something. And that's what we have to hold our, count, our candidates accountable for. But we also have to, as black and brown folks, recognize our power. Super Tuesday is going to be all about winning people of color. Yes, you've got Iowa and New Hampshire in January, then you've got, but starting in February, South Carolina, Nevada, Alabama, Hopefully Georgia, California, Texas, Virginia, Tennessee. The people voting in most of those primaries are black and brown people. If we want to send a signal for how we want to be treated, we've got to show up and demand that the candidates who win know how we want to be heard. That's our responsibility. Oh, we also have to remember that Twitter is not America. My account has probably just been cut off. <laughs> Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Hi. And I'm sure that Seattle is absolutely delighted that you're well, here. You uh, my name is Timia. And what I am curious about is as a woman, a millennial woman who experiences financial precarity, <laughs> rising medical costs, a ton of bills, but I have political aspirations. What is your advice to other women of my generation who do experience financial precarity, but do, might have political ambitions as well? Read chapter five, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain. <laughs> so I will, the whole chapter is called money matters, but here's the thing. Poverty does not diminish your ambition. And you do not have to have your own money to be successful in politics. <laughs> That's why you get to raise money. Uh, but, but what I mean is this. 
We often discount our capacity to win based on our ability to self-fund or even our viability based on our ability. We determine that because we don't have the resources of those who've gone before us, that we are invalid as candidates. It's a commentary on our ability to be effective leaders if we don't have resources. I will tell you that the best money managers I've ever met are poor people. Because it's easy to make choices when you've got excess resources. But being able to manage a family and do your work when you don't have what you need, that's what takes real ingenuity. And we have to value that in ourselves. And so you want to you want to make sure that you can afford to run, but that doesn't mean that you have excess resources. It means that you aren't sacrificing yourself to run. And that's different. If you are going to lose your health care, you can't afford to get sick on the campaign trail. So do not sacrifice your health care to run for office. Do not sacrifice your rent and do not sacrifice your car. But you also don't have to have everything you want all at the same time. And so what I believe is this. When you are called to run, you run. But you run with a team. You find those friends and family members who understand your precarity. And you say, will you help shore me up in these ways so that I can do this thing that will help make all of our lives better? But we have to have the confidence that we are entitled to run. That we are entitled. You say it with me. I am entitled to run. Out loud. I am entitled to run. We are entitled to run. <laughs> Wealth does not make you a good person, and poverty doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't. And anywhere in between, if you are an American citizen who wants to see more for her people, then you are ready to run for office. Okay? But for actual strategies that you can do, there's a whole exercise in the book, okay? Okay. Hi. Hi. I'm Natalie, I just got real, real nervous. Um, it's okay. okay. I'm the one standing on stage. Yeah. I know, but you're, you know. Um, <laughs> so um, I am uh, the, <clears throat> okay. am I? I am the human trafficking, human sex trafficking specialist for a neighboring county for the prosecuting attorney's office. Um, I believe in a victim-centered, survivor-led approach to, an, to interdiction, investigation, and prosecution, yielding higher sentences for the people who really need to have higher sentences, fewer people incarcerated, and um, a pathway to the, the vacatur of certain offenses from past mm -hmm. um, people. I'm good at what I do. I'm really fucking good at it. Good. And um, I can't get anybody to listen because... I tell people, I'm like, this is what I want to do. I believe in this. I know that we can do this. I think that, I think that there needs to be stuff. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm almost You're cussing fine. the whole time. There needs to be stuff on the books. I, I also run a therapeutic court that is one of a, its kind. And, and, and I have my ninth graduation of somebody. Two years. They've been working their ass off. And, um, and her, her charges are being dismissed. Um, this stuff. It can happen, but I can't get anybody to listen to me. Even people I talk to are like, Natalie, that sounds great. I don't, I don't think you can do it because I'm like, I'm going to go to Washington and I'm, or I'm going to go to, you know, Olympia. I'm going to make it happen. And then I'm going to, I'm going to show them that we can do it here. And then I'm going to go to DC. I don't know how to get anybody to listen to me. What do you want to do? I want to create legislation that says that, that you need to have a survivor led 
victim-centered approach when you do sex domestic sex trafficking investigations. And I want, just like drug court is, vet court, mental health court, I want that on the RCW of Washington for our therapeutic courts for a human trafficking diversion program because that specific program allows for this pathway to to the the charges being dropped and um, vacature of charges. I think that it is really important that, that that language is actually on the RCW, and I don't know how to get people to listen to so me. So I'm going to have you go sit next to Chelsea. Okay. Okay. So... So while I'm not in charge of anything here, I know a lot of people here. I've met the governor. Um, I know a few of your congresspeople. I know a lot of your legislature. And I think the work you're doing is extraordinary and incredibly important. And I've done work on human trafficking in Georgia, and so I know how hard, I know how hard the work you're doing is. I know how hard it is to make people understand that you can be someone who is a victim, but who looks like you were complicit in a crime. And I know how hard it is to find not just... They, they, no, no, no. It's, it's not that they don't care. Natalie, look at me. What, what often overwhelms people is the, the sheer enormity of what you're trying to address. And we as people try to avoid things that we think we can't fix. It's not that we don't care. It's that we are overwhelmed by our lack of capacity to change it. And so it's just easier to drive past or to ignore or to turn the page or just not follow that link. It's human, it, human frailty does that to us. But power is when it's not just you. Because you keep saying I, but you need is we. And so my job is going to be to help you find a we. Okay. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Seattle. My name is Tana Yasu. And um, my question is, you're also in King County. And I want to know if you know that this is the only county in the United States named for Dr. Martin Luther King, King Jr. And that... So um, <laughs> Also, um, after about 20 years... Uh, of having we not having affirmative action here based on um, I-200. Uh, we now have today passed the I-1000, which is going to bring back basically affirmative action for women and women minorities and even veterans to uh, to our state. And um, but this is after 20 years. You all have voter suppression. We have had economic suppression for 20 years at the rate of about almost $3 billion to our community. And it's very much seen by the homelessness and everything that we're dealing with on the streets every day that we see is the direct results of those, um, those setbacks that were done purposely um, so you're dealing with racism in the South in the way you all are dealing with it, but our institutional racism has been way, well, I won't say worse, but it's just something we're dealing with. So now that we have I-1000, as of today, what would you suggest as a, a mobilizing of getting our 
businesses back up um, and getting people to get more involved and uh, to, to not let these things happen again. Also, I wanted to gift you with the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. lapel pin. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I'm going to have you give it to Chelsea. Because, no, you, I'm not done yet. Okay. So what often happens with good legislation or with change is that we celebrate the change but not the implementation. And we get all excited, remembering when the ACA passed, and then we all went home, and then Republicans took everything because we forgot we got to get this done. What you've accomplished is the first step, but it's, it's going to be hard and long because people forget what created problems. They just remember what the problems feel like. And so there's a retraining that has to happen. Uh, you know, affirmative action has been under assault across this country. And what you all are trying to address Part of the challenge is getting people to believe that change is actually real. And often the hardest people to convince are the ones who have the most power to actually implement that change. And so what I would do first and foremost is an educational tour where you're meeting with the folks who will benefit from it to explain to them not how they benefit but how they've been harmed and then how they benefit. Because if you come to someone and say, Merry Christmas, they're just going to say, okay, thank you. But if you remind them that they used to get coal and now they get like a, you know, a Tesla, I don't know if that's a good one or not. Um, I, I mean, I, again, I'm confused where I am. Um, but when you tell them something good is now possible, but you've got to give them an understanding of the longitude of what changed. And so that's the hard part. Because, yes, the passage of the law is good, but people need to know how laws work. And this goes back to Natalie. There are great things happening across this country on human trafficking, but so many people don't understand it so that the work that she does becomes harder to do because we all shake our heads at how terrible human trafficking is, but we don't know what to do about it. People shake their head at economic oppression, but it becomes so much a part of who we are as a society, they don't know how to fix it. You're giving them the tools, but you gotta teach them how to use the tools. Okay? Okay. Apparently I'm running for mayor. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Hi, Ms. Abrams. Thank you Hi. for being here. Um, my mind just went blank. Uh, okay. Right. So I think I read an article in the New York Times about you and the story that stood out for me that was shared about, I think you were in high school and you won an award and you went to the governor's office and the security guard wouldn't let you and your family in. They'd seen you come off a bus. Yeah. So... That really struck me, in addition to your sharing your financial situation. Um, what I wanted to ask you is, so given you probably have a lifetime of stories that you could share um, and the stories about your brother, how, how have you chosen, given that all of us have some private things we don't want divulged, how have you chosen which stories to share and which to keep private? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So... Despite my public displays, I am deeply introverted and very private. Um, but I think it is hard to ask someone to hire you for a job where your job is to help improve their lives if they don't believe that you know what you're doing. And the best way to know that you know what you're doing is the ability to articulate what the challenges are. And so typically when I share a personal story, it's because I've experience the questions from people 
And it's a way to authenticate that I do know what I'm talking about, but it's also a way to say you're not in this by yourself. Uh, sometimes the hardest stories to tell are the ones that are the most shameful or embarrassing. Debt, incarceration, drug addiction, uh, racism, harm. And for me, my first responsibility, I've always asked my siblings and my parents before I share anything, uh, because it's not my story to tell. Uh, once I've gotten permission, it's important that I don't tell it, don't tell these stories just to get a reaction. I have to tell these stories in the context of a solution. And so I don't share any narrative that I don't then have a solution for. Because it, if it's simply to pull your heartstrings, then I'm a fraud and I need to sit down. But if it's because I understand it and therefore know how we can work together to solve it, then it's a legitimate story to tell. So yeah, I got a lot of stories, but most of them are just things I know. But for me, it's when I can use the pain or the challenges we faced to improve the lives of those I want to serve. Thank you. I just want to acknowledge that we are running quite long, so we thank you so much for your generosity. I'm sorry, I think there's two more questions yep, here. Yep, and I'm going to go real fast. And, then that's and you got one? Oh, there's one so more. So come, come up. So. Yeah, please. Hi. Uh, my name is Jay. Thank you so much for coming. You're such an amazing, beautiful thank queen, you. so thank you. Thank you. I also must thank Jonathan, who was able, or who gave me his extra ticket, because your ticket sold out in seconds. So um, my question is, um, I'm seeing lately on the news, now people are talking about reparations for African Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, my question is, why have uh, Asians and Jews been um, given reparations? Which, of course, they should have been, but why have not Africans yet? And is that something that you really see possibly happening? Sure. So I, I think we have to contextualize what constitutes reparations. Um, the reparations or the, the reparations given to Japanese Americans for internment uh, were direct reparations from the federal government. Uh, Jewish, most of the Jewish uh, reinvestment was essentially returning their property to them, property that was stolen and uh, they deserve to have it back. But it was also con fairly contemporary. Part of the challenge with reparations for African Americans and for Native Americans is that the systemic harm continued long after the initial act. There was, there was never a natural end to what was done to African Americans. Because even with the end of Jim Crow, you still had the vestiges of all of those policies that continued to create disproportionate harm and disparate harm. The same thing is true for Native Americans. And so part of the challenge is that we're good at solving discrete problems as Americans. We have a difficult time grappling with a, a deep, long history of institutional racism that continues to this day. And the solution to that problem seems so vast as to seem absurd. And so I think the first step, and the one that's the most important to me for this moment, is we're actually talking about it without laughing. That we're having a legitimate conversation about it. Because 10 years ago, there, you could not have paid a presidential nominee, right. a candidate, or someone thinking about possibly running for office, which apparently includes most of America, to have this conversation. <laughs> and so that's the first step. The second step is then actually grappling with the complexity of this issue uh, because we are 400 years into this challenge and it's going to require a deeper conversation of what the harm was, what the remedy could possibly be. And that's the thing about reparations. Reparations are not remedy. 
reparations are addressing some harm, but we can never address the full psychic and economic harm done to, to African Americans and Native Americans. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, Ms. Abrams. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking my question. My name is Imijah Smith, and I am here um, because I th my spirit or the spirit is pushing me to ask you this question mm -hmm. with a little bit of preference. Uh, recently, I've been doing some advocacy at the state, state level um, around some criminal justice reform, uh, re three strikes law, and I have found that although Washington, Seattle, uh, our great liberal progressive folks uh, speak great liberal progressive language, but when it comes to uh, making corrections and restoring and healing of harm, it's a little bit of pushback because we don't want to touch our relationships or harm any relationships. So, for instance, there's a removal of robbery too from the three strike from serious offense for three strikes law to move forward. And usually, folks who are doing robbery too are current addicts who don't quite look like crack addicts of the '90s but they don't want to do it retroactive right now. And it speaks so heavily around the value of my community who's been harmed. And, and during this process, I was just like, I got to let my ancestors speak through me and really tell the story about the harm that was caused in my community, the harm that was trauma, the, trauma, the trauma I experienced because of those laws. And so my question to you is, um, how do you stand in your dignity and, and negotiate sacrificing your dignity of who you are and allowing your ancestors to speak um, on these platforms, political platform, because you're here in, in this city, this community that's been gentrified. And I, I have a lot of great friends who, who are white and of other ethnicities, but just don't understand or get the harm. And if I try to tell that story and I have to tell the story and it's truth and it's deeper meaning, hopefully to share impact, but that kind of, that story gets closed off. And I want to know how, as an example, I know I have to do it through my experience. I'm going to have to go through it because I'm pushed to do so, but I'm just curious, what are your best practices? How do you negotiate that? Sure. Thank you. I appreciate the question. I, I think part of the, the challenge of the work, especially work that is restorative justice, it begins with centering people and the experiences that we're trying to solve, but you've got to create space for people to in enter those experiences. And part of my obligation is often trying to make sure I, I contextualize it so people can see themselves. It's not just about you embodying or, or you empathizing with what I'm telling you about my human, my humanity, my past. It's also connecting it to you and what you're concerned about. And this goes back to the, the earlier question about why I tell stories. I tell the story of my brother because, yes, my brother experiences racism and harm in a very specific way because he was an undiagnosed bipolar teenager who was just treated as another bad black kid. But if I stop my story there, then people can dismiss him and they can dismiss the remedy. What I have to then do is talk about what happens to the young white man sitting in a classroom who's also underdiagnosed and he instead picks up a gun because Part of our obligation is not simply to bring people into our experiences, but to expand it so that it reflects their experiences. And that's hard to do because sometimes it means sublimating part of our anger, our righteous indignation, to create space for other people to experience what we experience. And they can never experience it fully. 
They will never understand what it means to be a black man or a black woman who is accused of robbery and put in prison for 15 years for a crime in a commensurate community would have gotten them you know, 30 days probation. But they can understand that the cost to a community, the cost, the, the actual cost of incarceration, the cost of jobs, sometimes it's about settling in humanity, sometimes it's just about talking about money. Because what, what I did with the Republican governor of Georgia to help address criminal justice reform and get some of those retroactive things done, we restored the right of ex-offenders to actually get licenses for jobs, which they could not get for almost 30 years in Georgia. You got trained to be a barber, but you couldn't get a barber's license. Yeah. So I got a white Republican conservative to help me fix that, and I did it by doing three things. One, I talked about what's happening in other communities, not just what it meant for my community, even though disproportionate effect on black people, but I talked about what this meant for people that he knew who was coming out of jail. Number two, talked about the economics of it. If these people can't get jobs, then we're paying for them to be poor. And number three, you're increasing your recidivism rate, which means you're paying for them to go back to jail. Sometimes we solve problems by making people feel. Sometimes we solve problems by making people pay. And so part of it is making sure you got the money conversation to back up the moral conversation. It is not enough to talk about morality. We don't make laws based purely on morality. We make laws based on morality, on money, and on meanness. Because we put people in jail because we're mad at them, not just because we're afraid of them. But you have to have all three of those in your arsenal. And so, yes, let the ancestors speak to you. But the reason they survived was that they knew how to have a larger conversation to bring people along with them. All those things yeah. are I'm happy. You have the very last question. Make it thoughtful and transformative. I'm sorry. It's not going to be like that. But I just, it has a little bit of, by the way, my name is Sasha. I'm Sasha Marcano Calderon. I'm from Puerto Rico. Um, <laughs> um, and it has a little bit of um, two questions that you had. The first one, so you have accomplished so many things. Um, and the barriers that you must have overcome, I, I'm guessing, are just as huge as everything that you've done. So, and it's, so I, I wanted to know how, how do you not let it get to you? It's, sometimes it's just too much. And also, um, another lady talked about being a millennial and wanting to run. Um, I come from a poor community. My grandparents never graduated school. My mom is a hairdresser. My dad was skilled. But I still, I love my community. Um, it's an, it's a, a black town, super poor. Um, and I know I can do things. I know, I know it's through policy, but still, like she said, no one listens to me because I'm black and I'm a woman. And I will read your book because I bought it. But what, how, what else can you say? I really, yeah, what else can you say? <laughs> thank you and thank you. <laughs> thank you. So, and to young women, I, I know that, so I'll tie all this together. Number one, we do not win every challenge. And that's why my metric for success is not victory. It's did I fight. And, and that has to be it because otherwise, I'm a, I grew up in poor black in Mississippi. There are entire movies made about that, okay? <laughs> And so my obligation is not to be overwhelmed by the lack of victory. It is to be renewed by the fight. And there will always be a fight. 
This is about power. It's about access. It's about equality. These are things we are not organized as humans to want for each other. We've got to fight to make it so. And so I don't have the luxury of being angry. I, I can be angry, but I don't have the luxury of being sad. I don't get to become despondent about it because criminal justice reform has been underway in Georgia for eight years, and we now have this man who wants to undo the work we've done, work that I did with a Republican governor, and he wants to undo it because too many black and brown people are benefiting from it. And so I know that there's nothing permanent about my victories, so I can't celebrate them as though they're permanent wins, but that also means there's nothing permanent about my losses. That just means another opportunity to learn from it and come back and do it again. And for you, for everyone, we don't know what people will accept until we ask them. My dad told me, you don't tell yourself no, let other people do that. So you run for office and let people tell you they don't want your help. Let people tell you they're not going to get you there. And when they say that, ask them why. Because when those women told me, well, you're... You're a black woman. I didn't just listen. I'm like, I know I'm black, so tell me what that means to you. And when they had to try to stumble through an explanation, I didn't try to fix them, but I made them confront who they were. And when they tried to do an event for me after I won the primary by 76%, I let them give me their money. <laughs> Do not tell yourself no. You're, you are who you are, and you want what you want for the better. And if you have no money, if you have a criminal record, if you have poverty, if you have a physical disability, if you have a bad story, it does not matter. If what you want is good, then let them tell you no. Do not tell yourself. But I am going to say go. Thank you so much.